This is a Moraine Valley Community College Library event podcast. For more information, visit www.morainevalley.edu slash library. Every story must have a beginning, and mine goes back to my mother, who was herself a wonderfully gifted storyteller. Very early on, she instilled in me a passion for reading and listening to stories. Many of my happiest childhood memories took root as I sat on her lap, listening to her read from my storybooks. Even though I couldn't read yet, I remember moving my babyish mouth to her phrases, her tongue seeming to magically tick over the sounds. Often changing her voice, she would become the characters, bringing fairy tales delightfully and sometimes frightfully to life. Peter Rabbit, the Berenstein Bears, and Curious George set a revolving menagerie in my imagination. Many summer nights, when my father was working yet another swing shift at Victor Dana, we would lay together in the cool dark, waiting for the clock to chime midnight for my dad to come home. For my mother and me, this was a time reserved for the best stories of all, the real ones of their early marriage days, the ones before I ever existed in their world. She would talk about how as newlyweds, they lived in a place called Paris, not the one in France, but the small rural town in southern Illinois, and not a romantic flat either, but one in a roughly renovated garage with only one room. Then there was another story when dad was a field hand on a farm in Palestine, Illinois. The job included a small apartment with an outhouse, and Mom had tried to bake her first apple pie in uh, the apartment stove from scratch. I'm not sure from memory whether or not the stove was wood-burning, but the result was a lead frisbee that cracked his tooth. And in anger, he strode out to the sty and threw it to the usually forgiving and always hungry pigs. Even the sows wouldn't touch the thing. Dad always just laughed at the memory, but Mom was so mortified she never again tried to roll out dough. And that's why all of our holiday pumpkin pies came from Gallows, just off Main Street. As much as I love to hear the stories of them struggling through the hard times, I long to hear more about my arrival in their world. My mother's regular reading schedule had planted a curious and fertile garden in my mind. I soon went beyond asking why the sky was blue to why weren't my eyes blue like Dad's or green like hers? When did I come into the picture? How? I was little when I first started asking those questions, about four or five, I would say. I remember that they were met by a faraway, wistful look in my mother's eye and a response of, when we got you, we were the happiest people in the world. And I was special, she would say. And that was that. Her body language told me not to ask any more questions and that story time was over. I learned early to be silent because my questions made her sad. Perhaps, as a result, I wanted to make them both happy. And in order to do so, I thought that it was important to be like them and look like them, like all my friends were echoes of their parents. My neighbor around the block was the little doll version of her mother, with her older brother being a walking, talking clone of their father. But I felt alien. Even at that early age, I knew I was different. I wanted to look like my mother and took special joy in the fact that we both adored strawberry ice cream and staying up late watching scary movies on Sammy Terry, Indiana's version of Spenguli. However, this is where our similarities seem to end. 
My mother's luminous, almond-shaped green eyes that I would trace with my little fingers were nothing like my dull brown ones. Her coarse, unruly black hair and pale, almost translucent skin were unlike my own cow-licked auburn hair and freckled shoulders. Nor did I look like my dad, who had sky-blue eyes with white stars in the centers, sausage-thick fingers, and bowed legs. I did not look, sound, or act like anyone in my family. While I was adored, protected, and loved, I often felt like a sometimes grateful guest. And at least before I was 13, I wasn't entirely sure why. While I always knew something was different, I did not confirm proof until I was a teenager. Not a great stage to discover that your inclinations about being different bears truthful fruit. But it was summer. Right before school geared back up and I needed a copy of my birth certificate to try out for a sports team that would start training in a few weeks. Both of my parents were at work and I went looking. In an unlocked green metal box in their closet, I found a bunch of papers, including my birth certificate that I had seen before. But with that, I found a set of onion-skinned pages, legal papers. Feeling somewhat sneaky, like I was doing something wrong, I looked through them quickly and on an eventual page found a female name that I quickly surmised was my birth mother. And a name below that. That person's name was mine at birth. I had another name, another identity. I was related to another person, another family. The white hot recognition of truth shot through me and my breath escaped through a pinhole in my spine. While I did not understand all of the language at the time, the legalese, I did know that I was looking at information that was about me. My heart fluttered in my chest like a caged bird as I tried to refold the pages quickly as if I were a thief of myself and closed the box, reeling from the information it afforded me. I was adopted. And I would not see that box or those papers again for another two decades. My parents knew that I knew. They had hidden the box and its contents in a place I would never think to look or would never dare try. And we said nothing to each other. The stage for that secret, a play that all of my relatives and I were complicit in portraying, could not be altered by questions about the truth. So instead, I shared the information with my best friends, who joined me in creating stories about the origins of my birth. What was my origin story? Who was this woman that carried me for nine months in her body? What was she enduring, imagining during those nine months in the turbulent 70s? Who was my biological father? What was my heritage? With an overactive imagination fed and fueled by my mother's storytelling schedule, I began to create answers on my own, my own myths. One moment I entertained that my father may have been my birth father may have been a soldier in Vietnam, never to return home. Or could he be Bruce Springsteen? Was he on tour that year? Or another famous rock musician, Cat Stevens maybe? The woman, I thought, must have been a feminist, or a writer, or artist, or maybe all of the above. I had just learned about Gloria Steinem. Could I be the love child of Jackson Brown and Stevie Nicks? <laughs> The myths got wilder and more delusional and more detached from what was probable or even possible. 
And then sometimes in darker moments, I imagined that perhaps my conception was tainted by violence. Could my life be the result of a rape? I would quickly shake that away and wonder if my birth parents were still in love and together. Or, of course, as an only child, I wondered if possible siblings. Whatever the reality was, I needed to know the answers. And the mystery, the quest to find a key for those answers to my identity consumed me. For people who are not adopted, I understand that the mere idea must be a true test of empathy. My secret search for this woman began in my teens, and I used the only way available at the time. Now, this was before the Internet became available to everyone's home, phone, and iPad, and well before online adoption registries sprang up, and before you could Google someone's name and find out exactly where they lived. I used the only database available to me, the library and its collection of phone books. I looked for her name, or what I thought was her name, everywhere, even in newspaper obituaries. But even I knew that women who married changed their names as convention, and finding a birth mother as a result would be a monumental task. So I became a consummate observer. Every face in a crowded mall, the person sitting next to me on a plane, or at a stoplight in traffic, any woman who seemed about 20 years older with brown eyes became a, a possible birth mother figure. I was looking for my nose, my cheeks, my freckles in every face I met. But I found absolutely no hint, not a clue. Honestly, I entertained the idea that no one had ever given birth to me at all, that instead I had slipped from some butter-fingered alien swooping in daredevil pattern over southern Illinois. But I had a belly button, which eerily made me feel tethered to the world in a very tenuous way. She had to exist somewhere, somehow, but she was as a ghost. As the years passed, birthdays came and went, and I continued to search, still finding no trace of her ever having existed. This is not just my story but it is part of a larger narrative that includes so many others. This reflects the experiences of many adoptees who were never openly told that they were adopted, nor were they ever encouraged to talk about or explore the psychological realities of being adopted. In conducting my research for my personal book about this subject, I have spoken with many adoptees, and I am constantly struck by the similarities in our experiences, questions, and our emotions. For these adoptees and me, the world and our place in it becomes fraught with questions about identity, ethnicity, and health. The search for answers is arduous, and little help exists when many families are reluctant to address the truth of the adoption experience. In 2001, my father was diagnosed with colon cancer. In 2006, I was in Chicago and working at Moraine when my mother died of a heart attack that left my father and me suddenly alone, separated and paralyzed with how to move forward in his treatment, his loneliness, and our lives. It was a fall afternoon when I had taken time to go see my dad, as I often did that last season, that he excused himself and returned from the bedroom with the green metal box. He had a little grin on his face, the grin I recognized with his ability to find things that had been hopelessly lost. Opening it, he reached in and withdrew the papers I had encountered alone decades before. 
These belong to you. Shaking, I looked at him and asked why. His response, let's find her. That was one of the most precious memories I have of my dad. When so many others crowd the possibilities. Perhaps he was afraid of my being left alone, or maybe he just wanted to know as much as I did about the origins of my birth, the unnamed ghosts that seemed to haunt me. But when I reread those pages as an adult, I realized with a comical cosmic irony that I had misread those pages initially in that quick, quick peek alone so long ago. I had been searching for the wrong ghost, the wrong name for almost 20 years. Having access to all of that information, I was able to finally, after a few years, locate my birth mother. And I actually talked to her on the phone for nearly an hour one August afternoon. She did exist after all. And her voice was soft, gentle, and amazingly familiar. We found we had a lot in common. My biological mother was an artist, as I had thought, who spent a good deal of time abroad in Paris. Paris, France. We both enjoy yoga and tennis, and we both have cats named Abby. My biological grandmother was a poet, just like me. As a result of that conversation, I was able to discover that I have a genetic predisposition for breast cancer, skin cancer, and diabetes. This is a life-changing information that all adult adoptees should have access to, and that's why I support and fight for the rights of adoptees and their adoptive families. Those rights include having access to one's own original birth certificate, something that is legal right now in only a handful of states. And as November is National Adoption Awareness Month, I would encourage you all to learn more about adoption and rights for adoptees and their adoptive families. In the end, I realized that I spent a good deal of my adolescence and adult life trying to reconcile within myself the reality that I was born of one set of parents and raised by another. I searched for answers to my questions about my origin story, evidence of my birth parents, and I was one of the lucky few who found those answers. But I was surprised by something else I found that I did not even know I was looking for a truer understanding and appreciation for my authentic parents, the ones who raised me. I came to better know their hopes and fears and moments of deep sadness in ways I could never imagine. They took care of me when I was sick, taught me to work hard, and nurtured my innate sense of empathy. They taught me to find the sweet spot on a baseball bat, got me my first library card, and encouraged my love and passion for reading and writing. In my search, I found them, my authentic parents. And as I continue to tell and share my story, so do I share theirs. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this Moraine Valley Community College Library event podcast. For more information, visit www.morainevalley.edu library.